0: Welcome to New Books in Israel Studies. My name is Yaron Peleg, and my guest today is Oded Mir, who is visiting assistant professor of Hebrew at Vassar College. And we'll talk today about his new book, Signatures of Struggle, which came out late last year with the State University of New York Press. The book is is a very interesting and innovating book, uh, History of Israeli Literature. And what is interesting and innovative and very exciting about this book is that it is, for the first time in some time, offering a new history of Hebrew literature, which until now has been seen uh, or viewed from a more national perspective, with Israel, the the birth of Israel as sort of the zero point against which books that have been written in Hebrew before and after relate to. And uh, what Oded has been uh, trying to do in this book is to offer a new vista or a new understanding, a new analysis of the uh, way uh, Hebrew literature, modern Hebrew literature has been written. And uh, why don't you, Oded, tell us a little bit about what you're trying to do in this book and what's so new and exciting about it?
1: Okay, first of all, thank you, Jaron, for having me on the podcast. It's a great honor. Um, about the book. So the book is generally divided into three periods on which I'm focusing. The first is the 50s, the second is the 80s, and the third one is right now. And I will say later briefly why I chose those. Um In each of those, I offer a very, very unique or new way of looking at the history of Israeli literature. For example, in the 50s, I think it's probably the most radical divergent from how Israeli literature is usually considered. Both Zionist and post-Zionist literary history see the state of Israel as the culmination of Zionism. It's kind of like the realization of the Zionist dream. What I say is that the opposite is true. Actually, between Zionism and the state of Israel, there is a big moment of repressed fracture. And I, what I show about the literature of the late 40s and the 50s is that it registers this rupture. Okay, it is only about this rupture and, and not about uh, valorizing uh, national ideology for example. In the second moment in the 80s, which is usually considered when postmodern literature first emerges uh, in Israeli letters, I show usually this is taken very unreconstructedly to to kind of like the reflect the Western influences and how postmodernism comes from the West to Israel um, and things like that, following all kinds of political transformations in Israel. Usually every critic picks their own political transformation. What I say that is that Actually, there is a very deep political or or economic cause for the rise of Israeli postmodernism that makes it very, very unique. And that reason is that the fact that Palestinians in 67 became the proletariat for Israeli capitalism. Okay, this creates what I call, following Marxist criticism, um, um, a crisis of social mapping or of the social imagination, and this crisis is registered in the postmodernism, in the in the feeling of disorientation and having no uh, no clear and stable reality to latch onto in the literature of the late eighties. So that's about the eighties. On on the on the contemporary period, instead of seeing it in terms of identity politics, I usually see it in terms of a search for a new history. Okay, so if this history was lost in the 80s, now authors are more actively looking for new ways to imagine history. So that's, that's basically the book.
0: So, so what I'd like to perhaps ask you to do, now that you have described the various stages you take readers through in the book, is to try to define more succinctly perhaps the strand, the critical strand that unites these parts. What have you, what is the new, the new, vi, the new, the new analysis, the new angle that you are offering that replaces the national one?
1: Okay, what, what I'm offering, if, if usually uh, literary criticism stops at the level of national ideology, it looks at literature either as affirming or as exploding national ideology, taking sides in this big debate. What I see is that whatever contradictions are registered in the literary work are actually ways of trying to work through economic contradictions. Okay, that's basically, broadly speaking, a Marxist approach to literary studies. So I'm not ignoring the national the debates around national ideology, but they are for me a way of working through economic and social
0: contradictions. I see. So let's uh, this, is, this sounds very really interesting. So let's uh, try to look at this specific uh, way of looking at things more uh, closely by uh, following some of the things you're trying to do in the book, beginning, let's say, with uh, pre-state literature, the literature that was written in the 1920s, 30s in Palestine, that is Israel at the time. And which has been more generally understood as a literature that is trying to forge a national community in Palestine, a Jewish one. And uh, all the, a lot of the ways that that literature has been read is through this angle. So how, what, how are, How are you seeing things differently here?
1: that's 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 an excellent question. And I think that the way this this literature is usually viewed, uh, which is by the way very heavily influenced by the writing of Gerson Shaked and his generation of critics. Uh, about Israeli literature, even the much, much later critics, they're writing, they still refer back to Shaked to justify this view. So this view that the literature is simply engaged in forging national consciousness, I think is absolutely false and is an anachronism. What do I mean by that? It's kind of like taking its own national ideology and reads it into the literature. Instead. What's happening in this, this literature, this realist literature, this genre literature, to quote the, the term that Brenner used to describe it, um, what it does is tries to imagine historical agency. How do people, can he, how can they imagine their own effect on their, how, how they, they forge their own history? Okay, there are all kinds of ways to imagine that. One of these is very nationalist. Others are very communist or based on class struggle. And you can see these tendencies in reality. I'm not just, this is not just in literature or in imagination. There is going on in Palestine, all kinds of experiments, new social experiments with new social forms, some of which more capitalist, some of them are very anti-capitalist. Some are with, uh, you know, both Jews and Arabs are involved. Some of them are ethnically pure, to use that Problematic term. So what I'm trying to do is to show how this uh, uh, kind of like utopian project of Zionism, which is not necessarily nationalist at this point. It's just a project that aims at self-determination or self-liberation.
0: How it animates this literature. I see. Can you um, give examples? Uh, Sure. can Can you concentrate? Can you... Can you hone in on a writer or a story that exemplifies this?
1: Yes, I can, actually. uh, And this is actually not not coming from the book, but from an article about the 20s and 30s that I'm writing right now. And it's about an author called Mir Vilkansky, which is usually completely forgotten. And that's because of the criticism of people like Shaked who consider Vilkansky to be simply an ideologue. For uh, Zionism. So, for example, Vilkansky has this story called, and he's an Ishar from, from the second wave of Zionist immigration to Israel um, from the 1910s and 1920s. There's a story called Bacher, okay, which describes, all it does is it describe a group of Jewish workers who are preparing a field to be sown. Okay, and there is a lot of just very lengthy description of the work itself and how important it is to do this and how important it is to do that and the, the kind of like the little dynamic in the work, which kind of like at the beginning seems very much
0: within the line that Chaket takes. Okay. But- so why, for example, so excuse me, so why is... Shaked dismissing this story on which grounds
1: Okay so I, I don't know if he I, I, wrote he mentions Wilkanski. generally I don't
0: the the reason for, for, he does, for he does, he does. does, but let's say but let's assume that he's yeah. doing so it's the
1: reason the reason um, that that such an author would be dismissed is because all he does is kind of like defy labor okay which is this big Zionist ideal for Shaked and for others that you know the conquest of labor was this big uh, uh, Zionist ideal, right? How uh,
0: we yes, Jews it, from the okay. diaspora
1: come to Israel and become these, uh, you know, masculine workers.
0: But shouldn't this be something Shaked um, glorifies?
1: No, because for him, uh, literature, any literature, should be ideologically free. Right, that this literature, by taking up and celebrating what he calls the Zionist meta narrative, um, is is not that. It's, it's the opposite of that. It's propagand, propagandistic literature.
0: I see. So, continue. And, and you think this, this story is very important because?
1: So, the, just one example. The, the reason this story is important is becomes clear, first of all, if you look at the different types, social types within the group. So, you have a lot of debates there between different people that think very differently about the Zionist enterprise. Okay, so there isn't actually one ideological line that all the workers take. Okay, it's actually very, very diverse and not this, this this contradiction between them isn't resolved. So that's one point. A second and much more important point is that all this feeling of heroism, of tilling the land and preparing this this land for cultivation and thereby imagining your role in doing history actually is thwarted in the end because the workers are driven off the land and they're all very, very exasperated. I see. And then drives
0: them off the land.
1: Okay. The owner, because they're done working. Okay, so it's not their field that they're, they're just hired to do the work. And they're driven off the land. They, they consider this field their field. And then the owner drives them and drives them out of it. And they are very, very exasperated and angry and confused. And this is how the story ends. I see. And, you, and you're saying... Okay, so very, very clearly this story doesn't, doesn't celebrate any clear uh, 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 Zionist vision, but
0: actually problematizes it. I see. And you're saying that because of that, because the story is not focused, as Shaked said, on nation building, but rather on sort of class struggle, if you will, then it is tainted. It's ideologically tainted.
1: Well, no, no, not not even, I don't even say that. I'm just saying there's no, you know, the, the the expressed political views are less important to me than the fact that they're they're thinking of themselves as this Zionist vanguard becomes thwarted the moment they're driven off the land okay, there isn't here a successful culmination or rosy future of the Zionist enterprise. There's actually a big schism between what the people think they're doing and what actually happens. And this contradiction remains open. No one comes and says, oh, you did right, oh, you did wrong. You should have done things differently. There there isn't a very clear solution. That's the important point. It's not important that there is kind of like a class struggle dimension and a nationalist dimension and all of these are problematized.
0: That's, That's less important. I see. By the way, perhaps this is a good point to ask you. A, a, the bold question uh, relating to aesthetics, is this a criteria that you, criterion that you um, even engage with in your selection of the stories for discussion?
1: Uh, is what a criteria? Whether the stories problematize this narrative or not? No, no. Aesthetics. Literary aesthetics. Yeah, but what is, what is the criteria? I know I don't know. Do you have one? According no, to- I don't. I just go. You know, the, the only the only uh, principle I had is is as if a very stupid one. I look at who Kid, kind of like condemns as very very ideological writers, and I read them. I see. And one by one, they reveal themselves to be much more. I don't know. Trying to animate the utopian moment in which they're living, rather than ideologues of nation building.
0: I see. So one of the, one of the reasonings for, I mean, none of the reasonings for selection uh, that you've done have to do with the, the literary worth of a story, but rather the ideological or...
1: Yeah, I I don't, yeah, it has, it had, at this point it had nothing to do with uh, literary worth. Which is not a criterion I strongly believe in anyway. Um,
0: I didn't think so. Yeah. I didn't think so, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about it, but perhaps we can go back to it later on. Yes. But let me ask you this. Can you then can you, can you, uh, take us forward in time and continue this, uh, the, the evolution of these ideas later on when the National Project is maturing? particularly towards the 30s, and, oh, I'm sorry, the 40s and the, and the 50s. Okay. Um, okay. For, for example, I don't know if at this point you want to speak about Izhar, but you um, say some very interesting things about him in the book.
1: Yes, I would, I would love to, to speak about Izhar because I, in my own opinion anyway, what I write about Herbert Giza is probably the most important uh, thing in the book for me
0: anyway. Uh, right, and and uh, so perhaps you can you can yes now speak about it. Yeah.
1: So as far as far as I can see, the uh, criticism of his of Chirbet Chizah, which is a very very famous and well, and often discussed story, has to do with ethics. Right. It's taken. Why ethics- why why is, why is the story famous? Oh, because it depicts a group of uh, uh, Israeli soldiers or or Jewish soldiers in 1948 occupying a Palestinian village and uh, driving away all of its Palestinian inhabitants, exiling
0: them. Is it, it, At what point in the War of Independence, 48, is it?
1: At what point is know? this happening? Or, I mean, the, the story itself yes. was published in 49. The story itself was published in 49. I don't know exactly when it was written, but, you know, what Sam Akhizar said later is that this is based on many accounts that he's heard uh, from soldiers in
0: the war. I see. So yeah. This is a very well-known story, which has a very rich history, both in Israel and uh, interestingly also outside of it, although it was, despite the fact that it was a very, very well-known story, short story in the Israeli canon and Israeli uh, culture, it hasn't been translated into other languages, particularly English, until the 1990s. Um, so so what, what's, what, is, what has made the story such a, an important and central and controversial story within Israeli culture?
1: Well, what made it uh, controversial in the in the in the time of its publication is that it, it portrays this this act as a very very cruel one. Okay, this act of, of occupying the Palestinian village and driving away its inhabitants is not here justified as some um, oh, oh this is what we have to do or they attacked us first. No, it's very clearly the the aggression is on the side of the soldiers. There's no attempt to cover it up. Okay, so this is originally. Later on. I think when so Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Later on when it's when it's uh, published in English in the in the nineties, I think this is a result of kind of like the rise of post-Zionism. Okay, kind of like a, a, a new a new awareness both within and outside Israel that Zionism should be seen, and I'm here presenting a position to which I'm not which I'm not talking about, yes, about, but that, that was, yes, seen so. as, a colonial, as an evil colonial movement. And here Ishar is a very early portrayer of that. And then some people take Izhar to task for not going far enough in his criticism, basically just treating the story as if it's a a, a documentary.
0: I see. So before you uh, have subjected it to your particular analysis what, what, in, in which way has it been understood in Israeli culture
1: okay so so the basic understanding I've, I've pretty much pretty much uh, already already said usually it's ethically it's ethically judged right people look at the actions of the soldier protagonist and his thoughts whether this is a justifiable action or not um, that he doesn't and the fact that he eventually doesn't decide to to do anything about feeling that it's such an unjustified or such a horrible act. Um, so it's taken as this like big ethical dilemma of soldiers in the I so see. this is how it's usually interpreted. Later there is an interpretation by Amos Oz, for example, which actually focuses on the trauma of the soldiers. Okay. That's I what's see. important for me. But that's okay. less.
0: What, what what are you doing with
1: it what the what i do is i take the the surface and that's that's part of the methodology i always use i take the surface uh narrative what what appears to us as readers as kind of like signs for deeper social antagonisms so for me the kind of like ethical impetus that drives the narrative is just a sign for for something else so what i do is kind of like look at what is at the margins of the story. And what is at the margins of the story, very, very clearly, is halutic ideology. Now, why halutic ideology is very important, because it is exactly not necessarily national ideology.
0: You mean, you mean the, uh, by halutic you mean pioneering?
1: Yes, pioneering ideology, which is all about working the land and becoming masters of your own surrounding environment and destiny through that. Yeah. Okay? So this ideology appears a lot in the periphery of the story, okay, if the center of the story is about the events of the occupation, the narrator likes to kind of like escape from the horrors of these events to the periphery of the story, where he describes the nature, and at one point, which I, I actually quote in the book, he imagines the plan of the Palestinian village, what he would have done if this was a Zionist settlement, how would he have planted things? Okay mm-hmm. so so again and this is so this is very very prominent in the periphery of the story and what i say basically is that what you have here unconsciously is a clash between these events of the occupation and the periphery of the story which is liberatory which is this utopian big utopian project the language of this big the language and imaginary of this big utopian project so for me what the story does is kind of like allegorize this clash. The fact that what you are doing now in occupying this village is completely foreign to this uh, project, to this liberatory project.
0: Is completely what? Foreign to the uh-huh. liberatory project, to the emancipatory project. You mean it, it, it um, gets in the way? Yeah, it's
1: just alien to it. It cannot be, it cannot be part of it.
0: Okay. Yes. Um,
1: which I is exactly, and this is how I read into it the kind of like demise or crisis of the actual liberation project and the transition to national ideology.
0: Okay, that's what's important for me. In the. I see, and and you say that the narrator or the author is aware of it, and that's what they're trying to express no. through... No. It.
1: no, for me, for me, the author and the narrator are completely unaware of it. What I'm dealing with here is the political unconscious of the story rather than the political conscious.
0: Yes, yes. Very interesting. Um, okay, so let's... Because this, this goes into your description in the beginning of the book, um, I think um, you call it the ruse of reason, the vanishing mediator, in which you... Uh, in which you, in, in which you speak about the fate of liberatory or liberation movements,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, more generally, right? If you want to talk about this, maybe you. I think it's a very important um, moment to do so because it goes into your uh, understanding of the story. Yes, yes,
1: very much. So, um, so very very briefly, what I what I'm the, the rules of reason is a Hegelian term. Uh, which uh, maybe in more accessible terms is is redeemed by Jameson as a way of narrating something by the term vanishing mediator. The term vanishing mediator has basically three stages, and it seeks to explain historical change. Okay, how one socioeconomic system transforms into another. It says, okay, in the beginning, you latch onto some older goal. Okay, in the case of Zionism, The Jewish love for Zion, yearning for Zion, which is mostly symbolic, Zionism latches onto it. But it says, okay, but we haven't been able to achieve this. Like, whatever we have done to try and achieve this goal hasn't been working. So we need new means in order to achieve this goal. And this is the second stage of this vanishing mediator. The new means for achieving this old Jewish goal is now Zionist settlement itself. Again, very, very foreign to uh, how Jews used to yearn for Zion before that. Okay, so this is the second stage. You invent new means to achieve this old goal. Okay, in the third stage of the of the vanishing mediator, the old goal simply vanishes. Okay, it's no longer effective. It's no longer animating uh, your social reality. Okay, so the transformation has happened, and now the old goal can disappear. Okay, so it's kind of like... Change is happening behind your back, as it were. You're doing something intending to do some one thing, but what's happening is actually happening very, very unconsciously. And yeah, that's that's
0: it. Yes, but why? Um, you 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 speak very um, sort of uh, uh, vaguely, or not really vaguely, but I would say um, abstractly. Can you give specific examples with respect to Zionism that the, uh, uh, at the beginning, this was the goal, at the second stage, something happened to that goal, and at the third stage, something completely different replaced it? Can you name these things specifically?
1: Well, I've, I've, I've tried to just do it for, for Zionism. Okay, so mm-hmm. for me, Zionism is a, va- a big vanishing mediator. Okay, That's it creates right. this new, it revives this belief in an old, Jewish uh, uh, goal, which is this yearning to return to Zion it you're, injects you're, you a,
0: to, do, do you have a problem with this this goal?
1: No no, no, I'm not judging any of it. I'm just trying to 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 describe how historical change happened, how basically what I'm saying is that at the basis of it, what happens is capitalism comes to the holy Land. I okay, think this is the material transformation that happens as we are imagining the pursuit of this goal okay that i don't I'm not ethically judging anything
0: no no I, I was just i was hoping you'd mention capitalism because you haven't until now and, oh. and yeah, and so yeah uh, and so that's that's what you're saying so let's let's see um so we have spoken about the literature of the twenties and thirties about the forties and fifties with bizarre, and now we are transitioning into the period that we have just, or you have just uh, described as the period in which um, the mediator vanishes completely and it is replaced by capitalism. Is that correct?
1: Uh, no, it's replaced by national ideology, which national is very, ideology.
0: very different. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so take us please forward into the, 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 the developing Israel and its literature and the way it responds to these developments.
1: Okay, are we talking about the '50s, or are we jumping to the '80s?
0: So you've just described um, the way some chizhar in Chirbet Chize is 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 um, giving expression subconsciously to this, I suppose, advancement or. Uh, the yeah, of the vanishing media that you spoke about, how take us now further into the developing state of Israel and describe how this is continuing in the literature that comes during those decades into the state.
1: Okay, um, so in the book, I actually don't deal much with the literature of the 60s and 70s, and that's uh, a conscious choice, I think. That I think that it does, it's actually not a very very interesting literature. It's a literature what I that I call a uh, late modernist literature in which the kind of like biting or 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 interesting or provocative dimensions of modernism kind of like get um, become toothless, okay, or defend. And I think the best sign of that is figures like. Uh, Amos Oz and, and Betty Yoshua which are kind of like a big critics of, of nationalism but they are sitting in national institutions okay imagine that as opposed to I don't know Brenner getting kicked out of all kinds of clubs because of his views okay mm-hmm. that's exactly what Yoshua and Oz actually are not doing so for me the next interesting point is actually the 80s and the beginning of Israeli postmodern literature
0: mm-hmm.
1: okay um, now, very briefly, what I see happening is that in the literary critical world, when they look at the literature of the late 80s or the, the 80s in general, what they see, they celebrate is this big dismantling of Zionist ideology, what they call Zionist ideology, but actually is national ideology. Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and I try to problematize that. I say, hey, like the, all of this, all of this ideological battle has been raging at least since the, the mid 50s. Mm-hmm. Because there is absolutely nothing new about the challenging of national ideology itself. And this is what kind of like takes me in order in, in, in looking at the literature of the 80s to calling the way that they challenge Zionist ideology, calling it pastiche, okay, calling it an imitation of previous literary form, an imitation that doesn't ironize but doesn't support
0: these things. So you have no problem of this big 20-year gap that you're leaving in the middle?
1: Uh, I mean, I do. I, there, is, there is a problem. The problem is that I, in order to even trace the continuities, I need to refer to this literature a little bit. And I do that in my discussion of the literature of the 80s, but it's much smaller. Okay, these are much more limited references to, to important works of the 60s and the 70s, like uh, my Ma- Ma- Michael, Michael Shelley, or or uh, Mula Yarot, um and, and, like that. and of course the, the narrative can be remedied and you can fill in the spaces. I felt that it was more urgent to touch on the 80s because that's when the next trans- big transformation in
0: social economic terms takes place. I see. So how do you see again uh, the literature of the 80s doing that you mentioned pastiche?
1: Yeah, I what what I'm saying is the challenging of national ideology in these works is pastiche. Is an mm-hmm. imitation of previous challenging of this ideology rather than kind of like a genuine challenging that's first that first appears on the
0: for example, uh- who does that?
1: For example, if you look at Orly Castelblum, right? Uh, a lot of uh, critics like to celebrate Bloom in the way that she challenges uh, national ideology very, very gr- grotesquely. Um, well, what I say is that a lot of the themes that you see in Orly Blooms, you can actually go back and locate in people like Amosos. So why is she doing this? Okay, so now you can ask, okay, so why is this prestige there? And what I try to show, and that's through uh, two chapters. One of them is uh, is dedicated to Yudit um, Katzir and Castelblum and uh, Batya Goul. And the other one is dedicated to Itgavuti uh, Yechidim, Aknaz, and and other authors. Um, what I try to show is that in this literature, what you get are actually allegories. Of the what I can call the death of historicity, the inability to map your surroundings socially.
0: Why are they unable to do so?
1: Why are they unable to do so? So my big hypothesis, and that's I think I think I I'm, I'm trying to argue for that for the book. I don't know how convincing it is, is that the reason for this inability to map your reality is that your everyday reality is less and less actually produced in Israel. Okay, it's more and more produced by Palestinians, okay, that have absolutely no voice and absolutely no representation ever since 67. As all kinds of socioeconomic sources that I cite show, in 1967, there is a huge infusion of a labor force that you can exploit as much as you like into Israeli capitalism, and a captive market for some of the products. So... You know you can you can see them appearing very very marginally in Israeli literature. For example, in uh, Grossman's in uh, David Grossman's uh, Smile of the Lamb, Chilchagidi, mm-hmm. that you can, when when he kind of like mentions as his protagonist is is traveling by car from the occupied territories to Israel. He mentions the people working, the Arabs working in the lettuce fields of Ramat Hasharon. Mm -hmm. And of course, today you will not find any lettuce fields in Ramat Hasharon. It's all uh, very expensive real estate. But back in uh, the the 70s, you could still see that. The agricultural work being replaced, it's no longer done by Mizrahis or by poor Israelis. It's done by Palestinians, Mm -hmm. which you can exploit much more. And the fact that these people who have no cultural representation, they're not part of the national imaginary, produce your everyday reality as an Israeli creates this crisis of social mapping.
0: And I this see. is what is expressed in the literature. I see. So um, this, to you, is, marks the 80s and the transition into what you call, or other people have also called, postmodernism.
1: Yes. For me, Israeli postmodernism is, uh, is, begins because of that. And I think that's the only way to explain the fact that Israeli postmodernism actually starts almost... Literary postmodernism starts almost at the same time as Western postmodernism. It cannot actually be influences because it takes place from the early 80s on, which is a little too early.
0: And, and you're saying this because in the past, trends like that came to Israel a little later than they have uh, fr- from, from, uh, from the time they started elsewhere?
1: Uh, no, I'm not referring to other to other trends and what is adopted from the international sphere. Uh, you could—that's actually a very, very interesting question. Which I would start with socialist realism and its role in uh, Israeli fiction. Um, I'm not—I'm not referring to any outside influence. What I'm looking at is simply at the fact that it's so contemporary to the Western trend that it cannot just be a copying of it. It has to be some kind of other. Uh, other social economic dynamic that's registered in it.
0: Oh, I see, I see. This is this is an interesting insight. And how is this then uh, continuing into the 90s and beyond?
1: Okay, so let's take, for example, I think a very good example, uh, or one that I like has to do with Hidgenvut Yechidim or Infiltration by Ushua Knaz, that again came out in 1986, okay. which is a very important year for Israeli literature, but was only translated, I think, in 1999 into English, infiltration. Mm -hmm. Um, So again, people like to celebrate how much of a challenging of, uh, of, of national ideology there is in this novel. But what I try to show is that the forms of representation that Kenaz uses, it's kind of like an encyclopedia of the 50s. Okay, he quotes every form of representation that was used in the 50s appears in it's a very masterful imitation very masterful act of pastiche that has all of the positions represented in it right the four characters i tried to show one is from a kibbutz one is from a moshav when one is from a a kind of like a marginal city and one is from a central city So you have Mm -hmm. these four characters kind of like situated one against each other and mapped their their fates are mapped Against each other, and of course, the fates and what happens to them in the course of the novel is itself drawn from the literature of the fifties. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I show how big of a, a work of pastiche there is there, which is again not a term that I'm using derog- derogatively.
0: So, so he would be then a um, contemporary of Castelblum, then. Yeah. In yeah. This this work. This and work. Who, and how does this uh, then proceed? How does that
1: uh, move uh, into the more contemporary period? Yes. So what I argue that is that around 2003 or 2004, 2005, there is a shift. Okay, that shift is not a shift. People tend to think about it. It's kind of like a shift to the absolute outside. We've left postmodernity behind. That's not true, what I think. Mm -hmm. That's that's what I think. I don't think we've left postmodernity behind, but we need to distinguish between different phases in postmodernity, the first one, and I'm taking this analysis from uh, American literary critics, uh, in particular Matthias Nilges, but other ones as well. Um, the first stage of postmodernity is postmodernism itself, where you have this big celebration of the falling apart of these forms of representation associated with the nation state in the case of Israel. Okay, that's, you see you see that in early postmodernity later in where we are that celebration kind of drops and what kind of like bubbles up to consciousness is the fact that you actually are completely lost socially you have no social mapping you have no clear historical understanding of how what you are doing is part of history okay if to quote a definition for what is historicity so mm-hmm. what changes between the 90s and today is the fact that this search, this loss of historicity, this loss of cognitive social mapping, becomes more and more conscious. Okay, people start trying to imagine new ways of imagining history, to try to invent new ways of imagining history. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think you see in very, very different kinds of uh, literature that's written today in Israel, uh, both in something like the uh, of Philip uh science fictional novels, one of which I analyze, and in things like Inatya Kier's *Sand*, or and and other novels that
0: that I mm-hmm. look at. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, you you end with s- talking about the connection between fiction and neoliberalism.
1: Yes, I do. I do. I do address a little bit the 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 relation to neoliberalism, and what what I say is that novels. Uh, like uh Natiakir, kind of like move us. So, so one of the ways to to imagine that is again to trace very very quickly the way labor or work is represented in Israeli uh, fiction. Okay, so we we already mentioned our twenties uh, authors that kind of like looked at that for for whom labor was this way to connect to history, right? That's why they describe it with such uh, zeal and 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 forever, right? Mm-hmm. And then later you have people like. Oz and Yoshua for them and which for them labor is completely capitalist labor. It's empty labor time that just repeats and it's completely alienated. Mm-hmm. And what I see is that what what I think is that in uh, in people like Yakir, in in Yamei Khal, for example, uh, San what you see is uh, kind of like the service service labor and emotional labor or affective labor of that's very, very common under neoliberalism. It's very, very precarious. Right, so you see that a lot. You see all of the different formations of this type of labor, this service labor is, is represented in Hebrew literature today very, very richly. And what's more important is
0: the form of these novels. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to ask you if, um, you gone through, I think, um, there's one last thing you probably want to say about the end of the book, but, um, are you? Was did you have in mind when writing the book? Um, a, a, a replacing of the canon.
1: A replacing of the canon. Um, oh, questions of canon are very very interesting for me, but they are. That's not that's not the the explicit the explicit aim of the book for me. A canon is you know a list of. They're very, very simplistically a list of books that everybody should read. A canon is a result of a common political project. As long as we don't have a common political project, a new one, there's no point in redefining a canon for me. That's how I view canon. And are, you
0: trying, and are you trying to
1: find a common political project? Uh, not, not in this book. Not in this, not in this book. book. I see... That's a possibility for the future, but that's something you don't do,
0: one doesn't do by, by themselves. So what, was the, what would you say was your main impetus for writing this book and for offering this critique?
1: Okay, so the main, and that's thank you for asking that actually. Uh, the main reason for, for writing this book is that, to my sense, Israeli literary criticism is very much stuck in the last at least twenty years, it tends to repeat its claims about how literature challenges uh, national ideology over and over again from all kinds of perspectives. It's kind constantly busy with trying to invent more perspectives from which to show how much specific literary products challenge national ideology and for me this is this is this is kind of boring, okay. need we need something else national ideology is no longer no longer hegemonic in israel in the in the strict sense of what is hegemony okay so for me writing this book inventing this new history of israeli literature gives you other coordinates to talk about rather than the nation state and its ideology
0: I see this is this um,
1: is the big reason for writing the book
0: and do you see any insights into the understanding of Israel as any kind of so-called project?
1: I don't understand the question.
0: Do you, so beyond that, beyond the alternative narrative or alternative critique that you're offering, do you also have anything more definitive you want to say about the project called Israel?
1: (sighs) Uh, not yet. Again, I think, I think that projects such as these need to be invented in, in, in big groups of, of concerned people or people that are struggling with all kinds of realities. I don't have a new political platform. I wish I did. If I did, I wouldn't be doing literary criticism. I'd be trying to
0: do that. I see. Would you like to say anything uh, else to wrap up and conclude uh, our discussion?
1: Um, maybe just that this book is an invitation of other people to come and join me in this new project of reviving literary criticism in Israel.
0: That's, That's great. It. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for talking with us.
1: Thank you so much for interviewing me.
0: Sure. Have a good day. Goodbye. Bye.